0: Well, those of you guys that are married, your wives are probably shaking their their heads a few times at you. At least my wife certainly (laughs) has at me. All right, we're in a series about addressing the mess. This is uh, part four of four, so we're finishing up today. Today's topic is messier. So let me start with a question. Have you ever made a mess messier? You ever spilled something and cleaning it up, it got bigger and bigger? or break something and trying to fix it, it got worse and worse? I think the answer is, we've all done that, right? Why? (laughs) What's the reason? Why have we made messes messier? And uh, I put it this way, every mess comes with some bad options. And the interesting thing is, usually the first options are the bad options, the first things we think of, because we usually think of ways to quick fixes uh, the easy way out or we think's the easy way out so whether it's a financial issue or a relationship issue or health issue a uh, work issue whatever it might be this is something we all have in common and this principle we're going to talk about today is that about how to help you not make messes messier will help anyone believers or unbelievers people that aren't Jesus followers so if that's you hope you'll pay attention this this should be helpful for you also. Once you make a mess, you can't unmake it, right? <clears throat> so the only options are to try and uh, fix it. I was going to tell you some easy, simple story from my life, some mess I made that, that, that worked out really great. But uh, I, talked, I was talking to my group, one of my small groups, and it just I was convicted or felt really necessary important that I share with, the biggest mess that I ever made. And the biggest messes are relationship messes, right? Yeah. So, some of you heard part of this story, probably not all this story, if you've been around here for a while. So, growing up, my parents didn't have a very good marriage. Uh, we didn't go to church. They weren't church people. They, had, they were weekend alcoholics. And they'd get drunk on the weekend. So, about when I was about 13, we started going to church and stuff started to change. But my... My dad, the way he would deal with relationship issues was he would leave. I mean, literally leave. He would take off for a day or two or three or four. He always came back. He usually came back with debts. And so then we would, my parents would try and financially dig out of this mess that he made. So that, that's how it went for the first 13 years of my life. Um, but just because you start going to church doesn't make your relationships automatically good, does it? And so my parents never really had... Uh, a good relationship. My dad was, tended to withdraw. He was uh, a passive person. And my mom kind of uh, took care of everything. So he died when I was 18. He was 45 years old. So when I was 24, I met the person that's now my wife. And uh, just after I turned 25, we got married. <clears throat> and I didn't have a very good role model. And her parents had just gotten divorced. So she didn't have a very good good role model and like many of you or many of us we just thought hey you love each other it's going to all work out right it's not much more complicated than that a year later i became a pastor so we're pastoring a church and five years later we wound up being missionaries overseas and fast forward we're, we're married about 12 years and uh, we came back we had four kids i like just ranging from like 12 to two years old and uh, that year back in the states was kind of weird Uh, I didn't have a church to pastor. I just went around in different churches and talking about being missionaries. And so our relationship kind of strained overseas, and it just kept getting worse. And my way to deal with that would be what? Now, I didn't literally leave. I never left my family, but I would emotionally leave, just kind of withdraw, read books or watch TV, and just left the house to my wife, because that's the way my mom just kind of took care of everything. And I'd be passive-aggressive. For periods of days, I wouldn't talk to her. And um, it's obviously not very complimentary to me. And as I already mentioned, I'd have uh, temper issues. So I would lose my temper at times. And so one day, she's out driving around. She comes back and asks where she was. She said, I am looking for a place to move. A move without me. Uh, you know, m- move out. <clears throat> and so that was a wake-up call to me. Now, I had chosen some bad options up to that point. Uh, emotionally withdrawing, uh, temper issues, uh, <clears throat> passive aggressiveness. So at that point, I had made a mess, a relationship mess. My wife was ready to leave me. And um, I had choices to make. There's some bad options, there's some good options. I thank God that I was wise enough to choose some good options. And most of you heard we, uh, say that we went to counseling and 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 so forth and began working on our relationship in healthy ways and we still work on it and we have a good marriage at at this point. So that's part of my story and I'm not, if yours is different or uh, I'm not comparing myself to you, that's just my story of of the biggest mess I ever made. We're going to look at a story from the Bible about a guy named David. Most of you have heard of David but we're going to look at a story that you probably Maybe no, or maybe not no. It's really not one of the ones that most people know. But I want to give you some background. Uh, as a teenager, this guy, a prophet, Samuel, comes to David's house and is, talks to his dad, Jesse. He says, uh, God told me to tell you one of your sons is going to be the next king. Now, Saul is the king at this point. He's the first king of Israel. And so... Jesse thinks it's his oldest son or his oldest son. He's got like seven sons. He got six of them are at home and none of them are the right one. And, oh, is there another son? Yeah, I got a, you know, a little teenage son out, shepherd. He's out in the field. And call for him and he comes in and nobody expected him to be the one. But then Samuel says, he's the king. Now, here's the problem. Now, we have two kings, right? We have a man king and a child king or a teenage king. Uh, nothing transpires as far as the kingship at that point as far as David's concerned. In fact, his brothers go off to war and most of you know the story of David and Goliath even if you're not a church person you know that story, right? <clears throat> None of his brothers were brave enough to fight Goliath. He gets there and says, hey, this guy's no different than a bear or a lion. I've killed those taking care of my sheep. I'll just, you know, kill him like I did and he does. So now David is, you know, <laughs> world renowned. He, he's a rock star. He is more popular than anybody else. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows about this teenager named David. And uh, so that's where we're going to pick up the story after David and Goliath. All right, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 18. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. So he was successful at at, uh, killing Goliath. And so the other things he was doing, he was successful. He, he just, you know, everything turned to gold. So we even met people like that. Well, here, of course, this is because God is with him. Passage goes on. When Saul, he's the king, right? Recognizes this, he becomes more afraid and we might say jealous of him. And afraid that he's going to become more popular than him and maybe beca- take over for him. So he's very insecure. He's afraid. And uh, so he's. Got options. What am I? How am I going to deal with this mess in his in his view? But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. It's interesting, isn't it, that people lead leaders even if they're designated the leader or not. So the people are following David even though Saul is the king. And of course, again, that makes him jealous. So Saul's solution is, I'll marry David off to my. Daughter, he'll become my son-in-law, but he won't be able to pay pay the bride bride price. Right? He doesn't. He's not rich. He doesn't have money, and so he's Saul's got a, another solution. When he offers his daughter to David, David says, "No, I can't possibly marry your daughter. I I am from a poor family. We're not anybody important. You are the king and the kingly family. This is a princess. You know, I'm not worthy." And so, in his humility, he turns turns the, the king down. And we're, we're told in, in, in this passage why Saul wanted to do this. He said, Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines then let them kill him rather than me doing it myself. <clears throat> so this was his solution to his mess, his bad option, we would say. <clears throat> but David refused. Passage goes on a little bit, little, little bit later. Dave, uh, Saul tries this again. He offers uh, another daughter to David. So when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, he says, okay, you can be my son-in-law. And he accepts this time. I don't know why. Maybe, you know, this lady was more attractive or uh, he'd gotten older or whatever. But again, he has the problem of the bride price. So, the king says, no, no, you don't need any money. All you have to do is go kill 100 Philistines and bring back the proof. And he's thinking that the Philistines will kill David and his problem would be over. Well, if you read the story, he comes back with two. He had killed him and his friends. had killed 200 Philistines. He did double the bride price. And so uh, that didn't work for Saul to get rid of David. So Saul becomes even more afraid or more jealous of him and he remains David's enemy for the rest of his life. So he's got this, he's just obsessed with getting rid of David. Uh, this guy that's taken his popularity, probably going to f- take the place of his son. Saul wanted his son uh, to become king. Now, so David's got this mess. The king hates him. He's trying to kill him. Has David done anything to deserve this? Was he at fault any, anywhere, as we can, best we can tell? No, absolutely not. He didn't choose to be anointed next king. I don't know, think that they, uh, Saul knew this at this point. He didn't choose to be a war, war hero. He just went to, you know, visit his brothers on the battlefield and just kind of, spur of the moment, kills this giant. Uh, then he's just doing the best he can, whatever opportunities he has. He's, he's serving his country and the military. And he's just successful at everything he does. And the king hates him, and he is... Done nothing. In fact, this problem just seems to escalate. The more right things he does, the worse the situation gets. And sometimes we make our messes ourselves. Other times we're not at fault, and that's the case here with with uh, with David. So, Saul actually tries to kill David with a spear and throws it at him. He misses, and David takes off. He's he's an outlaw. He's he's running for his life, and he gathers some men around him that are you know, enemies of the king and so forth. So he's got this band of merry men or whatever, and he's traveling around trying to stay alive, basically. So we're going to fast forward a couple chapters in the Bible. Saul is out fighting the Philistines as normal. He returns from fighting. And he told, he's told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So the Philistines are on the coast by the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, en Gedi's over on the other side of Israel, on the east side over by the Dead Sea, all right? And he finds out he's there. So Saul chooses 3,000 elite soldier, troops, okay? So I don't know how many he has, but he chose 3,000 of the best ones to go after David. So, and he's searching for David, his men near the rocks and, and the wild goats. David may have had 600 men, all right, at the most, 3,000 soldiers. Well, I wanted to kind of show you a, a picture of what this area looked like it looks like now. It probably looked like this 3,000 years ago. It's near the Red Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea is dead. So there's basically just rocks and scrubs and lots of caves. And this is important to our story. Uh, lots of caves like, like in this picture. So Saul is going after David. Uh, story goes on. And at the place where the road passes some sheep folds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. A cave like this. Army all stops. He's the king, of course. King needs to relieve himself, so he goes up into this cave to take care of his business, all right? Uh, evidently by himself. Well, it seems to be a safe thing to do, right? But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in this very cave. Now instead said to keep keep running from Saul, they were hiding from Saul. Okay? They thought this was the best solution to their problem, get them out of this mess. And so they're in the back of this cave, the same cave that, I don't believe in but that Saul uh, has entered now. What are the odds, right? Now, most of us looking at this would say, well, it seems like a God thing, right? Just so happened that Saul entered the cave where David and his army was? So what's going to happen? Uh, what's David and his men going to do? So, David's men whisper to him, now's your opportunity. Today, the Lord's telling you, I'll certainly put your enemy into your power to do with you as you wish. Seems like a God thing, right? He's trying to kill you. You can kill him before he kills you. This was the temptation, right? And And it even looked like God had arranged it. And his men were thinking, okay, David, you told us one day you're going to be king, and we'll all be, you know, important people in your kingdom, and now's your chance. God's arranged circumstances, so now you can kind of take over. You can almost be bloodless. You just kill the king, and then everybody will probably follow you. You're the most popular person anyway. You become king, no problem. Your mess has been solved, Right? might think of it this way. I'll do to him, David's thinking, what he intends to do to me. It only seems fair, right? Self-defense, really. Wouldn't we call it that? But here's the question. <clears throat> would that be the virtuous thing to do? Would that be the honorable thing to do? Uh, would that be the right thing to do? Would that be the best thing Thing to do with everything considered not just the immediate problem so here's the reality if you and I ignore virtue ignore doing right ignore what's honorable we'll eventually make a mess we have an expression two wrongs don't make a right isn't that what we often think? So we have bad options: getting even, C- getting the mess over with sooner rather than later. Not being patient, not being self-controlled, being re- uh, responding emotionally, whether, again, it's in a financial situation. Well, you know, I'll just borrow some money to get out of this, even though I can't pay it back. A relationship issue, well, if she doesn't care, he doesn't care about me, then I'll find somebody else that does. Health issue, work issue, you know, they don't pay me enough, I'll just, you know, steal a few things from work. And then you get caught. And then maybe you lie about it. So let's back to, to David's story. This man is saying, now's your opportunity. This is your chance. It's what you've been waiting for. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemies into your power do with, to do with as you wish. So David, here, here's your, here's your chance. God's given you the opportunity. Do what you, whatever you want to do. You can make this mess messier. And that's the temptation here, even though... It seems to be a, a quick fix or shortcut. So David starts to creep forward. With, with the intention, we think, to kill the king, right? But he does something unexpected, certainly unexpected by, by, the, by the, his soldiers. He crept up forward to cut off, and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. What? Where'd that come from? What in what in the world is that about? What does that mean? So let me ask a couple questions. Would he have been? What do you think? What do you think? Would he have been justified if he had killed the king? Basically, self-defense, right? So if you exclude, you know, Thou shalt not murder thing, <laughs> he he would be justified, correct? He's just, he's just killing the person who's trying to kill him. Would it would have been what was expected? At least by his soldiers. Would it be what was expected? Yes, absolutely. That's what they expected him to do as he creeped up on him. But what? It, was it virtuous? Was it honorable? Was it right? And of course the answer to that is what? No. Absolutely not. In fact, the, the, the text goes on and says, David's conscience began to bother him. Not because he was thinking about killing him, <laughs> but because he had cut off Saul's, a piece of Saul's robe. Now, we can't comprehend this. But anything that belonged to the king was as important as the king. So, and they're thinking, if I cut the robe off, it's the same as cutting a finger off. All right? I know it doesn't make sense to us, but that's, that's how their mind work. Everything that's the king's is, 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 is uh, kingly. Right, And he had cut off a part of the king's room. I and mean, his conscience started to bother him. So he goes back, creeps back to his men. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one. But the Lord himself had chosen him. This would be doing the wrong thing. This would be going about it the wrong way. This is not the virtuous, the honorable, the right thing to do to do. God's put him in place. It's not my place to remove him. God said, I'm going to be the next king in God's timing. I'll be his king. But I'm not going to force the issue. Even though it seems like that maybe that's what God's arranging. Maybe that would be the easier thing to do. So the text goes on. So David restrains his men and did not let them kill Saul. I can imagine that was probably pretty difficult. But evidently they respected David enough to to, to honor his wishes. So Saul finishes his business. He goes back down the down the hill, gets back on his donkey, uh, and then David does something. I, I'm, I don't understand. <laughs> I would have stayed hidden and let Saul go on his merry way, right? But maybe because of the conscience thing, it was bothering him. He had to speak. So the text goes on. David came out and shouted after him. Of course, probably down the hill. My Lord, the king! And Saul looked a- around. David bowed low before him. So David saw, <laughs> David gets Saul's attention. <clears throat> this very day you can see with your own eyes, it isn't true. It isn't true that I'm your enemy. It isn't true that uh, I want to hurt you. It isn't true I want to, you know, take over. Even though, you know, that's God's, God's design. So the Lord placed you at my mercy back here in the cave. Just telling you. <laughs> Some of my men told me to kill you. But I didn't. I spared you. And I said, I will not harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Now at this point, I can imagine that Saul is, comp- and the story seems to indicate this, he's humiliated. He's trying to kill this honorable man, this man that's more honorable than him, that spared his life when he had the opportunity to kill him, even though he was trying to kill David. And then David goes on, may the Lord judge between us. God gets to decide. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, maybe, but I'll never harm you. There's a Bible verse talks about vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not my place to get even. So, here's one way of saying I'm opting for virtue over hurt you. I'm opting for doing what's right, what's honorable, over getting even. Because when we get hurt, what do we want to do? We want to hurt the person who's hurt us. You've heard me say this a lot. Hurt people, hurt people. And when you think about that, you think, well... they're hurting, I don't want to hurt them more. The way I think about all this personally is it's always right to do what's right. It's not always the easiest thing. It always doesn't turn out like I want, but it's always right to do what's right. It's always right to do the virtuous thing. And Paul's, I mean, Saul's response to David is this. You're a better man than I am. For you have repaid me good for evil. Jesus talked about this a lot, right? Turn the other cheek, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. do unto others, have them do unto you. Seven chapters later, Saul is killed in battle. And David becomes king. So every mess comes Prepackaged with some bad options. For me, you know, I could have said, ah, I'm through with this. I'll find somebody else that's easier to love or I feel that would love me. Could have found some other relationship. I could have left my kids, left my wife. Could have been, done that. Might have seemed easier. Maybe it would have been easier. I don't know. I just knew it wasn't the right thing to do. An interesting thing about all our messes, no matter how big they are, how long they drag on, how emotional and how much we worry and fret about them, a couple years down the road, they're just a couple sentences. Isn't that true? I mean, most of you heard me tell this story. I said, you our 13th year of marriage, we weren't getting along, didn't like each other. We went to counseling. And uh, worked on it. You know, most of you know about our daughter-in-law dying about three and a half years ago. A year and a half, battle with cancer and the, and, and the emotions involved and all that and how it dragged out. And we say, yeah. We tell people, yeah, especially when I had a funeral yesterday here. Um, yeah. Three and a half years ago, my, my daughter-in-law had cancer and three and a half, uh, for a year and a half and, and she died. A year and a half just, it is two sentences. So what's really important is this. Your and my response to the mess is the real story. And you've all heard me say that, you know, we've counseled so many couples and people getting married and, and, and been able to help them in their relationship because of what we learned through our difficulties. So our response to the story is the real story. Now David, most of you know, just because he was, did the virtuous thing when he was young, wasn't always virtuous. In fact, later on he commits adultery and instead of doing the right thing, what does he do? He has the husband come home and hopefully have relations with his wife and it'll be hidden. That didn't work out, so then what did he do? He had Uriah killed in battle just like King Saul tried to do to him. He did it. And it, the mess got worse, got messier. The child eventually is born and dies. His son rebels and takes over the kingdom and David runs for his life. Let me ask you, what story do you want to tell? About your Marriage? I told you my story about my marriage, about your finances, about your work life, school life, whatever it might be. Can you imagine if David had killed Saul, became king? He was this king's son-in-law, right? So he has some grand, um, he has some kids, and his kids someday asking, "Hey, did, hey, hey, Dad, how did you become king?" How would you like him telling that story? I just killed your grandfather. That's how I became king. You want to tell that story? Don't think so. There's always some bad options. So, which of my options do I want to be a permanent part of my story? Are there virtuous options? Right? Did I do right? Right? where I'm going to be remembered as a liar or a cheat or a thief. That's part of my story. And it's easy to have excuses. Even with David, it almost seemed like it was a God thing. But did he want that to be his story? Now, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, hopefully this has been helpful. When you and your messes, future messes, whatever they might be, but if you're Jesus follower, this is the exciting thing. <clears throat> Jesus says, follow me out of your messes. That's what David did, right? He did what was right. He followed. So I want to leave you with this for this whole series. And maybe you won't remember much, but hopefully you remember this. God says, I want to leverage your mess to become a message. Our marriage became a message of hope to all the couples we've canceled over the years. And your mess can be a message to someone else. Again, it can be financial, health-related, whatever it might be. What story do you want to have to tell? Father God, thank you so much that uh, we can follow you out of the mess. Whether it's a mess of somebody else's making, or we married into, or it's a mess of our own making, we follow you. It'll be the virtuous thing, the honorable thing, the right thing. It might not be the easiest thing, and it's sometimes the hard thing. It takes courage, and we ask for the courage and strength to do what's right. I can't thank you for uh, enough, God, for your grace and mercy you showed to to me and my marriage and my and to my wife and I and my family. God, I know there's some messes here today, and I don't know them personally, but you do. I would just pray, Jesus follower or not, that, that, that they would do the virtuous thing, the right thing. And if, uh, if Jesus followed, they would follow you out, or follow you, and it would take them out of the mess. And that the mess could become a message of redemption. And you would get the credit for it, God. You get the honor, glory for it. And we do pray, as always, for anyone who's not a Jesus follower today. would be the day we step across that line. This principle will work for you, but it works a whole lot better with God's help. Thank you, Jesus, that you provide this for us. It's a gift. I call it. It's a gracious gift. It's a merciful gift. It's not what we deserve. But you love us enough to give it to us? We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.